This is Tax Update for Saturday, October 22, 2005. This week's Tax Update, does anybody really know what time it is, or at least when I filed this thing? Tax Update is a podcast intended for individuals who are capable of doing their own independent tax research and is not intended for those not skilled in doing such work on their own. Any advice given on this program should be independently confirmed before being acted upon for a client. This podcast may be freely distributed as long as no fee is charged for the use of the podcast, as well the materials accompanying this podcast that are available from the website can also be freely distributed under the same terms. This week we take a look at the issue of When did the return get filed, and what does the code provide us with ways of proving filing? And what keyed this was the Supreme Court recently declined certiori in a Tenth Circuit case, the case of Sorrentino, that dealt with a question about whether a return had been timely filed. In fact, in this case, it was a claim for refund. And the issue becomes interesting because there is definitely a split among the circuits in what can be used as proof of timely filing. And as well, there are a number of myths that are out there among practitioners about how the filing rules work and what counts and what doesn't count. So we're going to reveal, we're going to go over these rules and hopefully discuss what is the actual state of the law in this area, what the IRS hopes to make the state of the law be in this area, and what you should be advising your clients to give them protection for filing purposes. Basically, the problem is this. Most of our clients do not hand-carry their tax returns into the IRS Service Center to file them. Rather, our clients tend to use the United States mail, along with the vast majority of all taxpayers. However, there are a couple of issues here. When you handle as many documents as the IRS does, some of them will be misplaced. And some of the misplaced documents will be misplaced before any record is made of them having arrived in the system. As well, the United States Postal Service handles far more documents than the Internal Revenue Service. And by definition, some of those will fail to reach their destination. The numbers aren't nearly as big as clients may lead you to believe, Seems like checks automatically get lost in the mail. You know, the client, the checks in the mail, it's coming, it just must be slow. Nevertheless, there will be some number of returns that will be lost. This presents a problem the taxpayer has filed. As we are aware, if you fail to file a return and there's tax due, there's the failure to file penalty that is much more severe than the failure to pay penalty. As well... In certain cases, certain elections can only be made on a timely filed return. If the taxpayer did not file a return, the taxpayer loses the right to make that election, and that could have serious consequences. Therefore, the issue about whether a return was actually timely filed is significant, and for those taxpayers whose returns do get misplaced, this can be a serious problem. Well, Congress, deciding that they really didn't want every tax practitioner in America suggesting to their clients that they go run out and uh, deliver returns to the IRS on the morning of the 15th, so there'd be huge lines out of IRS offices that morning, did give us some options for assuring that the filing via mail counts.
The key issue is to discover how those rules work. As well, with the growth of electronic filing, there are methods to prove the electronic filing of a return. However, they are specific, and many practitioners probably aren't aware of the details here and what is the key issue to focus upon. The Internal Revenue Code Section 7502 is basically the governing provision here for both regular mailed filing and for electronic filing. The basic rule in 7501 is found in 7502, I should say, A1. And that is the date of delivery. This is the postmark rule. Now 7502 A1 basically provides that the postmark date applied by the United States Postal Service shall be deemed the date of filing even if the return is actually delivered to the IRS by the Postal Service after the date the return would be due. That allows our clients to put the stamps on the tax return, drop them in the mailbox on April the 15th, and have them arrive at the IRS offices well after the 15th of April and still be deemed to be timely filed. There are a couple of key provisions in this section to note before we get started. First, the postmark in question must be a postmark applied by the United States Postal Service. It must be, as well, delivered to the IRS. Two key issues. There needs to be a postmark applied and the return must be delivered for 7502A1 to apply. If the return is not delivered, the courts have held, generally, a non-delivered return does not receive a timely filing, even if it was generally postmarked in time. Now, there is some split in the circuits about whether you can presume the delivery and the burden shifts to the IRS, but the key fact is that even in those cases, you will find that you must provide proof there was a postmark applied, even if the IRS did not have the return. That generally is difficult. We also have the issue of clients who like to put things through meters. Meters are a different problem and a significant one. Basically, under the regulations, if a postmark is not applied and a meter does not count, then the return must be delivered to the IRS within the time frame it would normally have been delivered had it been properly posted and postmarked. Therefore, the IRS will only believe the meter date if the document gets there in a timely fashion. If the document does not arrive timely, then the IRS will not accept that metering date as a filing date. Clients need to be warned that metered mail does not work. Why doesn't it work? I remember a client telling me years ago when he indicated, oh, he forgot to file his return, but he was going to fix this. He could just backdate the meter in his office. That's nice, but it doesn't do you any good. Backdating the meter basically rolls yourself back, but you still don't get counts for that at the same rate you would an actual physical postmark applied by the Postal Service. 
Now, as we can see, 7502A1 has a fatal flaw. The document needs to get to the IRS, and we need to prove a postmark was applied. No postmark, then we're under a more strenuous rule that's going to require it to get there timely. Well, Congress did put in a fix for that, because absent a fix, many of us might decide, especially for large clients that had significant balances due, that, you know, maybe you need to get this return walked into the IRS office. Congress provided in Section 7502C a method of making a prima facie case for the filing of the return. Section 7502 deals with registered and certified mailing along with electronic filing. Section 7502C1 provides statutory support for the concept that if you file a document via registered mail, the United States Postal Service registered mail, that document shall be deemed to be filed. The section reads, for purposes of this section, if any return, claim, statement, or other document or payment is sent by United States registered mail, such registration shall be prima facie evidence that, essentially the document, was delivered to the IRS and the date of registration shall be deemed the postmark date. Therefore, if I file registered mail, which is one of the highest levels of service you can buy from the Postal Service, if I file that way, the code tells me I have prima facie proof of filing. What does that mean? That means I proved I filed a document with the IRS on this date. If you check the regulations, there is a requirement that it must have been properly addressed. That is noted on your receipt. You need the receipt with the date of postmark applied to it, which the Postal Service employee will do when you take it up to the counter. And when you come back and you have that document, you have proof of filing. Now the burden shifts to the IRS to prove you didn't file the return. That means they need to produce the envelope and what was in it, and that is able to be examined. If the IRS says, oh, we can't find it, but we don't think you really sent the return in, that's tough luck. The IRS has the burden of showing what was or wasn't filed, and merely saying we can't find it, but we're sure we didn't lose it, isn't good enough. You have prima facie proof of filing under the code. Now, registered mail is relatively expensive and a bit of a pain. In a registered mail, generally is traced very carefully by the Postal Service at each step along the way. So it is nice to follow, but it's definitely a service you pay much more for. The Congress decided to give the IRS the authority to grant by regulation certified mail the same level. That's good news because it's less expensive, and the good news is the IRS has granted via regulations basically a parity with certified mail. Therefore, under the regulation, if the mail is certified, you get a certified mail receipt for the mailing. That is considered proof of timely filing with, again, the postmark date that is stamped on the certified mailing receipt being proof of date of filing. That is the date you filed with the properly addressed receipt showing where it was filed. The Postal Service will have the records. Basically, you have that receipt you're in. Let's go on to a myth. 
This is the myth of the green card. What's the myth of the green card? Well, many practitioners seem to believe that certified mail requires you use return receipt. Nothing in the regulations tell us that return receipt is required. It is never mentioned. Secondly, the thing that is mentioned is the actual postal receipt that you receive stamp that shows the proof of the date of postmark. Remember, the postmark is the key. We need the document postmarked. The postmark proof is what we are given with the certified mail. Third, we're lucky that we don't need the return receipt because let's think about what we were really trying to solve. Our problem is our client drops the return, gives the return to the Postal Service, and for whatever reason, months later, the IRS says they have no record of you filing and they can't find the document anywhere. Well, that could have happened because the IRS lost the document after it was delivered. Could have. But it also could have happened that the return, in fact, never really did get to the IRS, that it was lost by the Postal Service. Now let's think about the green card for a second. The green card rides along with your package to the IRS. If your package doesn't make it to the IRS, the green card doesn't make it to the IRS. If the green card doesn't make it to the IRS, it is never coming back to you. If you must have the card to prove filing and it never comes back to you, you're back in the same boat we were before about the fact that we cannot prove we timely filed the return and the client has no method of getting out of this quandary. The certified mailing receipt or registered mailing receipt is the key. The green card may provide some peace of mind to the client, but that's all it provides. As well, you need to consider that the green card may provide just the opposite to the client. Just as the package might have gotten lost on the way to the IRS, the green card might get lost on its return trip to you. So now the return has been properly delivered, the IRS has it in their system, but your client now is worked up because they've never seen the green card. For those who aren't aware, if you have the certified mailing receipt number, you actually can track that on U.S. Postal Service's website. If you have that number, you will receive a proof of delivery date, at least as good as a green card, just as useless under the code, but as good as a green card and for peace of mind, perhaps better, because unlike the green card, this doesn't have to make it back to you. We don't depend on another level of delivery that might not work. Now, basically, proof of delivery is essentially is provided in the regulation 301.7501-1E1. Basically says, for those who are concerned about myth two, uh, what's myth two? Myth two is the certified mailing receipt is useless. Why? Because you could have sent anything in that envelope. That is true. You could have sent anything. But the prima facie proof is you sent the return. It is up to the IRS now to produce that envelope full of blank papers or an envelope that was empty that can be subjected to testing in evidence 
basically were in play now, and the only it's up to the IRS to show it was not filed. The regulation makes it clear that in the case of a document but not a payment sent by registered certified mail, proof that the document was properly registered or that a postmark certified mail sender receipt was properly issued and that the envelope was properly addressed to the agency, officer, or office constitutes prime face evidence that the document was delivered to the agency, officer, or office. Please note the document was delivered. Now it's up to the IRS to tell us what that document was. If they've lost it, they have a problem. Your client can prove filing. If you take a look at the cases, you will note the IRS has not raised this empty envelope theory in any of the cases, including ones they have lost on this matter. If the empty envelope theory was so great, we wouldn't have the cases we do have on the two circuits where we're going to get to where we discuss whether certified mail can be, is the only way, certified registered mail is the only way to prove filing or whether alternative means can be used. So it is important. Clients should be counseled. Use certified or registered mail if you want to prove filing. Now there is a third method that is for electronic returns. E-filing proof. Electronically filed documents get proof under Regulation 301.7502-1D. An electronically filed tax return is deemed to be filed on the e-postmark date. The e-postmark date is the date the electronic return transmitter records the receipt of the return that receives the transmission of the taxpayer's electronically filed return on its host system. The electronic return transmitter is the one who provides the proof of filing. However, there is a caveat. If the taxpayer and the electronic return transmitter are located in different time zones, it is the taxpayer's time zone that controls the timeliness of the electronically filed document. That is Regulation 301.7502-1D3II. Therefore, where the taxpayer is located controls the due time. That's for those of you who like to stay up late on the due dates and get things filed very late. If you are filing, you're located in Los Angeles, you have a client in New York, you're the transmitter. If the return is transmitted to you from the New York client, the New York client, the taxpayer's time controls the date of filing. Therefore, 9 p.m. is the due time, not midnight. Now, the regulation mentions taxpayer, does not say electronic return originator. That's somewhat important and interesting distinction because we want to point something out here as well. I told you the electronic return, basically the electronic return transmitter is the one who sets the time. Most practitioners listening to this podcast are probably not electronic return transmitters. Rather, they are electronic return originators who transmit their return to a third party for filing. What does that mean? It means you don't have proof a return was filed 
until your third-party transmitter issues the electronic postmark and that proof of filing is going to depend upon them claiming to still have that document and that proof of filing available. Realize you should have procedures in place to assure that the return gets properly transmitted to the transmitter and that you receive the e-postmark. If you're rushing to the last second, you need to make sure that gets done. We all are aware returns can be rejected. That's not your problem. Your problem is showing the first return got to the transmitter on a timely basis. If that happens, you're in good shape. But if you're an originator, that's a separate issue. Well, what does that mean? That means you live very dangerously if you actually try to file to the last second on electronic returns on the due date. Now, if it's the unextended due date, like April 15th, you have an out. Take the paper extensions down to the post office by midnight and you're fine, even if a problem develops. However, realize the problems can be significant. Your problems electronically could occur in a number of locations, which is why I'm very leery about going to the last day and the last instant. Your problem could be that your computer system crashes not good, especially if you now can't make the return be transmitted on time. Number two, your internet connection could go down or whatever connection you're using to your third-party transmitter. You can't get the return of the transmitter. Remember, it needs to be on their system to be timely filed, not yours. Third, the electronic return transmitter system may crash. If it's not running, it's tough to get the return there. If their return, their system's not running, you may have a late filed return. For that reason, it is very dangerous to be pushing e-filing to the last second. I know we'll continue to do it. Some clients just love to see it done. They love to go to the last second. But I would strongly advise most tax, most tax practitioners, including those who mainly e-file, and I know some of you are in states where you're going to be required to e-file everything, I would strongly suggest you establish a cutoff date if you're not required to e-file and convert to filing on paper on or after that date. That's what we do in our office as we get within one week of the filing deadline. We convert to a paper filing system only. At that point, we don't want to risk a potential technology glitch causing us to late file a tax return. Remember, in electronic filing, the responsibility for filing converts to the electronic return originator because that is the person who will get the return to the electronic return transmitter and trigger the e-postmark. In a paper return, you hand the return to the client and it's their issue to get the postmark applied. So you don't want to have the time when things can go wrong. If a client has procrastinated to the last minute, my thought is I don't want to take on the risk of problems. I don't have problems taking on the issues when I can save everything and I still have a chance to get something filed so if the system goes down I still have a whole week to get things in. But I have a problem if I have only two hours left to get it in and at that point my internet connection dies, the electronic return transmitter system dies, or my system dies. That presents a problem that I don't want to take on.
Finally, let's consider the controversy that's developed. We talked about the issue about Section 7502C and the prima facie proof of filing. The question arises, if you don't use certified or registered mail, can you still prove filing? Or if you don't file electronically and have the East Postmark? The IRS position on that matter is no. The IRS takes the position that Section 7502C provides the exclusive means of proving filing unless the IRS acknowledges the receipt of the return and has it, or at least has the postmark. If the IRS does not acknowledge ever having the return, you cannot prove filing via any means other than a certified or registered receipt or the e-postmark from the electronic return transmitter. Now, the IRS has had two courts agree with them on that position. In fact, it has happened twice. We have that, in fact, the Second Circuit, in the case of Deutsch versus Commissioner, certiori denied, and the Sixth Circuit in Carroll versus Commissioner, also with certiori denied, ruled that Section 7502 was the only method of proving filing. It was exclusive, therefore there was no issue to be decided if the taxpayer came to court, claimed they had filed on time, the IRS claimed they hadn't, and the taxpayer did not have the certified or registered mail documentation. These cases predated electronic filing, therefore that wasn't an issue, but they didn't have that either. We can presume none of these are available for proof. Also, don't forget, there are some documents that cannot be electronically filed, like uh, certain changes, amended returns, etc., claims for refund would not be electronically filed, but they do have deadlines and due dates that are impacted by this. Now, basically, that's true. In the Second and Sixth Circuit, therefore, if you are governed by those circuits, the only method that your clients can use to prove filing is certified or registered mail. What about outside those circuits? Well, we have two circuits that have ruled dead opposite. Although it is important to note, in both cases, there were very narrow exceptions to the certified or registered mailing rule. The Eighth Circuit in the Estate of Wood basically held that the taxpayer, if the taxpayer could prove the postmark had been applied, and in Wood, there was a very detailed proof that the postmark had been applied in the post office. There were third parties that testified they had seen the postmark applied. The Eighth Circuit ruled that in that case, because it was proof of postmark, the common law mailbox rule applied and therefore there was a presumption of delivery to the IRS and now it was up to the IRS to prove the return had not been delivered. The Ninth Circuit went along with the Eighth Circuit in the case of Anderson. In Anderson, again, there was eyewitness testimony showing the application of the postmark and the court noted that was crucial to proving this. The tax court basically ruled in Wood. It was an appeal of a tax court case, and it was a reported tax court decision. The good news in that case means 
that outside of the second or sixth circuits where the circuits controlling would the circuit would control the opinion and the tax court would have to rule as they had ruled in the other areas the tax court is generally going to rule that the common law mailbox rule applies if you can prove application of the postmark in the eighth and ninth circuit we know the circuit courts would back us up on that now what about this tenth circuit case sorrentino well that's kind of a good news bad news case the good news in sorrentino is that the tenth circuit said yes the common law mailbox rule applies therefore we can add the tenth into the category of courts that have ruled circuits that have ruled that the common law mailbox rule applies and therefore you can prove the postmark via a method other than certified or registered mail and you can prove and therefore shift the presumption of delivery to the IRS at which point the IRS has to prove what was or wasn't delivered however in the Sorrentino case Sorrentino still lost because Sorrentino did not have proof of postmark in fact, Sorrentino didn't have a very good argument at all. There were a number of things the court found that led them to believe Sorrentino may not have mailed it. And so the Tenth Circuit reversed the district court and held that Mr. Sorrentino's bold assertion that he had mailed the return and he knew he had wasn't good enough. You needed more evidence than that if you didn't have the certified or registered mail receipt. What that means is your clients who just drop it in the post box or who drop it off and don't get a receipt, certified mail receipt, are taking a risk. Most likely there is no way for them to prove application of the postmark. Being unable to do that, it would appear the 8th and 9th Circuit and the 10th Circuit would all rule against you, as would the tax court. What does this mean practically for our clients? Well, the practical answer is pretty easy tell your clients to get the certified mail or registered mail receipt no matter what let's not create a problem if you have that you have prima facie proof there is no question that'll be treated as proof of filing and now it's up to the IRS to show that you didn't actually file a return that will be difficult for them to do if they can't find the document to begin with or the envelope to begin with because we have proof an envelope went to them the question becomes IRS where is it however if you get a case after the fact, and quite often we do, or we get a client that ignores our advice, that also seems to happen from time to time, we have a more difficult issue. If you're not in the second or sixth circuit, you at least can try an arguing position with the IRS that you would have access to the common law mailbox rule and maybe you have enough evidence of mailing to trigger that. Again, it's an uphill battle, but it may be good enough to at least persuade you of to persuade the IRS if you're at the appellate level that at least you have a reasonable enough case that they can give on that issue. Uh, it's not good. You really don't want to rely on it, and you really need excellent evidence if you have to move forward on the matter. But it is an arguable point in those circuits. Well, maybe. The IRS has decided they don't even like that standard. As far as the IRS is concerned, they want certified and registered mail and electronic filing to be the sole methods of proof. Last September, the IRS issued proposed regulations 
and they were going to add to sections 301, 7502-1E1, the following two sentences. Other than direct proof of actual delivery, proper use of registered or certified mail is the exclusive means to establish prima facie evidence of delivery of a document to the agency, officer, or office with which the document is required to be filed. No other evidence of a postmark or of mailing will be prima facie evidence of delivery or raise a presumption that the document was delivered. The IRS has not taken this final. But the regulation, pros regulation itself held that if it became final, it would apply to all documents filed after September 21, 2004. Basically, any document you filed this year is would be under this rule once the regulation went final if that date is not changed. Now, there may be a question whether or not the IRS has the authority to grant this regulation given the opinions in the 8th and 9th Circuit, at least if the Supreme Court were to back that up. However, countering that is the theory that regulations are supposed to resolve ambiguities in the law. And clearly, if two circuits can say there's only one way to get proof and these two can say, oh, no, no, there are many, then it would appear there's ambiguity. And if there's ambiguity, then it would appear the IRS would be within its rights to resolve that ambiguity and issue a reasonable interpretation. Therefore, there is a chance we will retroactively have the certified and registered mail is the only way to prove mailing rule applied to us. Be aware of that. Advise your clients so. And just make sure you tell clients if they're going to be filing paper returns, do certified or registered mail. As well, make sure your internal procedures for electronically filed returns assure that there is documented evidence of the electronic postmark. Make sure you have that from your electronic return transmitter and don't consider a return filed electronically until you have that electronic postmark in hand. The materials for this podcast are available at the at my podcast website. And the easiest way to get there probably is www.edzollerstaxupdate, all one word, dot com, or ezollers.libsyn.com if you want to go there directly. And I will have the materials for this week's podcast up and running. Remember, this podcast is intended for those who do their own independent research to look into this area, and it is presumed you will independently confirm all items discussed here before relying upon them for advice to a client. This has been Tax Update for Saturday, October 22, 2005.